Hi, this is Mike McKee, and I'm here with uh, Bull Gervaisi, Chris Fry, and Joseph Gervaisi of the Cabbage Collective. Uh, it is April 19th, and we are here at Cindergarten, and this is for Loud Fast Philly. So, uh, the story of the Cabbage Collective is really about what happened because of the three of you and some others intersecting through punk here in Philly, but maybe... Uh, we should begin. Maybe each of you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into punk. I'm dying to know who was cooler first, Bull or Joseph. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I, was, I would be cooler maybe by just a second. Um, the, the story is that uh, when I was a kid, I had a pen pal, a horror pen pal, through Fangoria magazine. And we used to exchange audio tapes to each other where we would talk to each other through the mail. Uh, and this guy, his name was James Walker, was able to talk at tremendous length. I mean, he would send hours and hours worth of recording. Uh, and in, in part of the time, or most of the time, that we were conversing, and he was significantly older than me, I was quite young at the time, uh, he was in the Air Force. Um, and he had a, a lot of time, and he also had, say, some issues while he was in there. Uh, so, James Walker... Um, at the time, at the time I was a teenager, say say 14, 15 years old, I was listening to some like psychedelic music and progressive rock, and I knew that James listened to to this punk music, and I hadn't really heard much of it at the time. Uh, our uncle, Pulls and mine, uh, had a, a shit ton of 70s records. He's a big 70s rock guy, Uncle Mike, and he had given us um, tapes of like the Clash, um, which I listened to, and uh, the Ramones, Rock and Roll High School, but I really didn't know that much about punk. Um, but I knew that, that James was into it, so I asked him to hear about this to hear this band called the Sex Pistols because I figured like that's going to be the craziest shit. So he complied with my wishes, but what he did was he did a little tease at first. So he played like friggin' and the riggin' and songs from Great Rock and Roll Swindle that were absolutely not punk, and be like, okay, here's your punk song, and then it'd be like, you know. So and then finally he gets to like the, the big ones, and uh, and I thought, wow, this this is crazy this this is really crazy and bull would take part in these tapes too there would always be like the bull corner where bull would come on and he would talk for like <laughs> two minutes 30 seconds yeah. about how much i liked gumby yeah and then so wow. we heard the sex pistols thing and i think that that kind of immediately uh kind of set off a bomb in our heads because it the the weirdest thing about it was that there was a very short period of time between when we heard this which was probably the early part of 1987 to when I was going to shows that summer at Club Pizzazz, and Bull was three years younger than me, so he wasn't allowed to go first, but then... It was December of 87 was when I went to my first show at Club Pizzazz. So it took about six months to for the parents to be convinced to, to let me go. And this was a 13-year-old Bull you know, in, in South Jersey going Still 12 at that point. Oh, yeah. Rebel Assault, was that that show? Rebel Assault, Government Issue, uh, FOD... And misunderstood was my first show there, and mine was uh, was Scram was supposed to be seven seconds, but they never made it. Justice Justice League and Failsafe, I think. Um, oh, actually, I was thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> just to correct for the record. Um, I I guess I got into um, uh, punk and hardcore um, probably a year, maybe or so after uh, Jill and Bull got into it, and I didn't know them until a couple of years later um and it was kind of like uh i never really listened to music or anything i was kind of like a uh 
my world's kind of like just collided and changed in a matter of like a month or two. I was a, a kid living in like the rural suburbs of South Jersey at the time, not anymore, but uh, you know, riding around in the ATV and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, started skating and stuff like that. And then, you know, um, there was a couple older people around, you know, the older teenagers. And uh, this uh, guy gave me a, uh, a tape of uh, the Meat Men, um, uh, the Circle Jerks, and uh, Seven Seconds. And uh, at first, uh, I thought the Meat Men were just, this is completely insane, because it was, uh, we're the Meat Men and you suck. So it was like, <laughs> the, the introduction to the, to, to the to punk music was that, which was like, you know, at the time, even, even now, that, that album's kind of like, you know, over the top in some ways. So I was like, when I was a kid, I was, like 14, I was like, oh my god, this is this is completely crazy, and uh, I didn't really pay much attention to the uh, other stuff on the tape, and then like a few months later, I just happened to, as we're skating, and I started reading Thrasher magazine, all that type of stuff, I, uh, you know, for some reason, the music just it settled into my head, and suddenly I could understand it or make sense of it, and then, uh, you know, that's how I, um, you know, got into it, and uh, I, um, I met Bull and Joe, um, I guess at a, um, at a basement show for some local band uh, called uh, Nuclear Override. Uh, they were kind of like a, it was kind of like the uh, cross pollination of like my friends and Bull and Joe and their, their friends. And then uh, I guess from that, that's when I you know came close to uh, Bull and Joe and their whole scene, and they kind of gave opened up a lot of. Uh, I guess new music that I never knew about really um, and uh, heard before and uh, I kind of you know started to drift away from some of my older friends and stuff like that so that's how it started really and then uh, you know that's I guess the rest was history pretty much. Do you remember the date of that basement show Chris by any chance? I don't remember the date and I know I know it was in the summer of 1988 I don't remember the date of that show though. Uh. <laughs> I mean, some things. So now, did you guys live near each other, or would you kind of go to start going to shows together after you had all the three of you all together? Once we, um, I guess we we lived pretty close together. By the time we none of us drove or anything like that, so it was kind of like you know great distance. And uh, um, you know, uh, you know, basically, I met at that show. It was a basement show. That's how I met everybody, and uh, we went to the same high school. Um, so you know, I guess that that way, and then, um, and I think I, I, the first show I went to with everybody, you know, there's a lot of people that I never met before, a lot of people, a lot of like personalities I never even experienced before. So at first I was kind of felt kind of because I've always been kind of quiet and kind of shy and stuff like that. So there's a lot of like personalities back then that are you know everyone's out, outlandish, trying to be outrageous, and for a while it took me a while to kind of like. A, get comfortable with that and stuff and get used to it so it was it was kind of like you know a little bit of a like a learning curve and stuff like that kind of feeling like a uh, kind of an outsider in a way you know I mean there's a infamous picture of me in a big red jacket with me with like this giant uh, jacket red feather jacket that I wore just because it was what I had it's what I had it was like one of those big down jackets and it looked ridiculous and uh, everyone else has like you know crew cuts and mohawks and stuff like that and I just look like this like you know 15 or 16 year old like dork you know what I mean so, uh, so, so, <laughs> amongst just, the dorks you know and uh so, so basically it was 
you know, it was uh, it was everything was completely new to me. Like I never I never really listened to music at all, and then I just suddenly just started listening to playing uh, hardcore. So I had no background of you know Led Zeppelin or like Black Sabbath or anything like that. You know, I never listened to any of that stuff. So it was just hmm. everything was new to me. I had uh, some older friends in high school, and they were only really a year or two older than me, but they had been involved in, in punk for some time. They kind of crossed over between kind of like hippie drug stuff and punk uh, and would go to these shows in Philly. So fortunately, they would take me along sometimes to the pizzazz shows, and I think that you uh, ultimately came you know, with me. To the, like those guys were yes. driving us up there yeah. because they could actually drive. Uh, or at least like get us to the speed line to take the speed line from South Jersey and you know and onto the L to to the shows. All right. Uh, so I mean, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if we want to be completely chronological, but like trying to be incremental at least here. I, I know you know some of you guys, Chris and Bill, played music together as well. And at some point, this is going to dovetail into you three doing shows together, but. So you're all going to shows in like 87, 88, 89, uh, and I know by like 89, some pairing of you were doing shows together, right, at the Harwin? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think that part of uh, the, our frustration as, as young people wanting to go to these shows, I mean, for me at least, and, and maybe, you know, those who can say something different, but there were two kind of frustrations. One was that we could never get to as many shows as we wanted to go to because they were far away and hard to convince our parents to let us go and, and all this, so it was, it was a big project. Um, so it would be certainly be nicer to have something closer to home. And then the other thing was that we were reading these lyrics that were very political, or, uh, egalitarian, and they espoused these really heady ideas, but they weren't necessarily what you would see at the shows, where you'd <laughs> basically see like a bunch of people beating the crap out of each other, which was it was enjoyable in its own way, but like the idea of perhaps taking these ideas and trying to see them reflected in some way because surely someone's someone's living this way because these things are written you know i have the peace compilation and i've read like all of these these political lyrics and i kind of want to see this stuff in action um so i guess that that comes into the harwin theater um maybe one of you two want to talk about our relationship with them and how we came to do the shows there in ladies yeah, I mean, kind of building on what Joe said, I think the, the one of the big major things, and probably a lot of people have the same responses, like, you know, reading, like, Maxim Rock and Roll and the local scene reports and things like that and, and seeing, like, all this stuff. Like, for one thing, realizing that this is, like, you know, a little secret society that exists all over the country and the world, you know, you know, and uh, basically thinking, like, this is really awesome. Like, thinking, you know, you're thinking small scale first, like South Jersey, all these you know, little, you know, a group of people when you're going to shows and stuff like that, and, like, you don't really don't know what's going on, but then you realize that this actually is this, like, national, worldwide kind of scene, um, and it's exciting, and same thing with Joe, like, you know, a lot of the bands that I, I was uh, listening to were, you know, very idealistic, and, um, you know, uh, you know, were kind of saying things that just kind of I agreed with, and I just kind of, you know, Adopted a lot of the, a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the same positions that they did, and uh, I think initially, um, you know, I guess with the, with the Harwin, we uh, Bull and I started a band. Uh, I don't know, probably less than a year or so before that, and uh, it was kind of the same 
same thing basically is that we wanted to start a band. We never played musical instruments before in our lives, um, and we just that one day, uh, me, Bull, and uh, the other two people um, in the band at the time, uh, uh, Jeff Fisher and um, uh, Rich Bevilacqua, we kind of talked and said, let's start a band. And uh, Rich played guitar, so he played guitar. And then I think I, I said, I'll play drums. And Bull said, I'll play bass. And Jeff decided to sing. And that's how we did it. We just, I mean, it was, in that way, it was really kind of like a, you know, just to say, I'm going to do it and then do it was just really like, you know, kind of a very, a very, liberating experience and also a very empowering experience because you know you kind of just it's like high school and you know it's a typical high school bullshit you know you, you know you have to go through and stuff and i didn't particularly care about high school and stuff and to actually pick up something i really liked and cared about and then started doing it and kind of like meeting new people and developing this huge network of friends and stuff like that was uh was, was really exciting but uh you know getting back to the horror one we um as a band, we wanted to play shows desperately, even though we probably maybe weren't ready initially for the first time, but we, you know, at the time, didn't matter and stuff. But uh, we wanted to do shows, and we really didn't know anybody in Philly to, you know, to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, get shows and things like that. So we decided to, um, you know, try to do them ourselves. And we did, you know, like basement shows and outdoor parties and stuff like that. And um, this, this place called the Harlem Theater in South Jersey did... Um, it was like a one of the, one of the last like uh, you know old movie houses in South Jersey, and they used to do like you know uh, I think it was like a two screen movie theater, and they would do like you know movies and stuff like that. And they did Rocky Horror on the weekends, and uh, from from Rocky Horror basically is uh, how we met the the owners and the, I guess the daughter of the owner, and um, you know, we convinced them how convinced to let us you know do shows there because they uh, initially. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think initially they didn't have a stage, but they had like a typical movie theater, like maybe 20 feet or so in front of the seats. It was in um, vaudeville. They did vaudeville in the, yeah. in the 1930s. So the, most of those old Art Deco theaters had some, at least some sort of yeah. stage. There. And then, and then later they they did have a stage, which uh, which was destroyed maybe in a later story. But um, that's how we initially, you know, we bugged them enough, and then led us to a show there, and um, we, you know, we ended up doing, I don't know how many should we did there, maybe like a dozen or so. Um, okay. But they were desperately in need of money yeah. as a small independent theater, and yeah, once we started doing shows there, they saw that it generated some income, and yeah, so they invested a little bit in it by building the stage, and then, you know, we did some more shows, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, people were all excited because it gave them a stage to perform on <laughs> during that, uh, so it worked out pretty well for a while, and, uh, you know, we started out basically doing the same show over and over again with like the four local bands uh what bands were they which was the orgasmic toilet band joseph's band uh matter of fact which was chris and i uh the precursor to policy of three uh the crazy rubber chickens and <laughs> point of view which was oh. sort of like matter of fact's sister band or something uh <clears throat> so yeah we started out kind of doing that show over and over again and then uh then we started to reach out a little bit further and get some other bands from other parts of new jersey and you know had like the parasites and sticks and stones and resurrection and mouthpiece and uh you know started to get some better known bands of that era uh and we started going to more shows at like abc no rio once uh 
that came into being and was something that we were aware of and uh, could get rides up there or started getting driver's licenses and uh, could drive up to those shows and that influenced us also, uh, you know, as the Harwin was fading away and we were starting to move to Philadelphia and as we were starting to think about the Cabbage Collective. Uh, we did, we should mention that we did also have Bug Out Society play there and... Um, uh, neurosis, neurosis. Born yeah, against. and born against, yeah. So uh, there were some like pretty great bands that played there and there. Yeah, towards the end we had some really, really great, great bands, national but, acts. And I think what's important too is, um, I think at the time, which I think, you know, I might be wrong when I say this. This is my observation, but I think, you know, I think it was, for us, it, it was unique because I think, you know, us, like all our, the, the group of people. Um, time we all we all listen to all different forms of punk it wasn't like we we're all like this like straight edge gang or this like punk rock we everyone listened to everything and i think it was like everyone it was the kind of like um kind of like for a little bit that utopian punk rock community everyone talk you know talks about where everyone gets you know all the kids get along and everything's you know fine because everyone listened to everything and it was like you know straight edge kids and punk kids and you know everybody and uh i think that was really important and i think we we really um you know, especially in our the, the band and with the Cabbage Collective, we kind of took that same approach to to everything. I mean, we, you know, we never really kind of, um, I think, at least we didn't try to pigeonhole ourselves into anything. I mean, we liked all ty- types of music. We all liked different things, and I think that made it interesting, and also made the shows kind of interesting because we always had different bands playing that, you know, we knew about and things like that. So we had some inter- interesting shows with, you know, bands that, from different um, new genres, and I'm trying to think of a good example, like uh, um, you know, like Rain with the Sound of Trains and uh, Resurrection, I believe, played a show together, <laughs> stuff like that. Where I think, you know, we just we knew so many different bands, so many kinds of music uh, that you know we had lots of you know ideas, inspirations to do shows and stuff, and we had no shortage for bands we wanted to see play and stuff. So. No, when you guys were like, I'm just curious, like before we even get to Couch Collective, like you're doing shows towards the end of Harwin, where like you're you're having like Neurosis and Born Against or Turning Point or something play. Like, what kind of turnouts are, were you getting? Do you have any idea? I, I would say we were getting in some shows. Um, I would think even like the shows were just the local bands playing. There would be like maybe 60, 80 people there. I would think, and then some of the bigger shows, um, you know, it would be like. I'm, I'm, I would say well over 100 people. What, what, what's surprising is like I remember the neurosis, like born again shows, actually were probably lower attendance <laughs> than compared to like, you know, I think some of the local band shows had more people because people everyone knew it was more good to hang out and stuff. Yeah, my recollection of it was that there wasn't a dramatic difference between the the local band shows and the more like well known, you know, regional or national bands, because uh, it was pre-internet days. And we pretty much promoted it to the same people all the time, you know, our friends in South Jersey, primarily. Uh, so the reach wasn't really that far. There weren't many people. If we did put flyers up in Philly, like on South Street or something, which I don't really remember if we did that, there probably weren't very many people coming from Philly to South Jersey to go to a punk show. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it did... The larger shows would pull in some some different people, but 
it often wound up being, you know, our kind of uh, wider network of punks and skaters and uh, other, you know, random weirdos from South Jersey that uh, came to know that we did shows there and would come to them there or the other random places that we did them. I'd probably say Turning Point was probably the biggest show, though. I don't know the exact yeah. numbers, um, I but I right. think they probably, that, that show had the lar- largest turnout. It's always interesting to see people try to slam dance in a movie theater because there's like a narrow space between the aisles where people are trying to dance and then the theater staff didn't want that at all because I guess they were afraid that the place was going to be destroyed, which it was already destroyed, uh, or that they would get sued. So they would come out, you know, no, no stage diving, no slam dancing, but there's a little, little space where people were trying to, you know, do some craziness. And almost every show, too, it was like, that's it, that's, this is the last show, this is the last show, you know, because there's always something happening, someone like, you know, did some slam dancing or overflowing a toilet or dumb stuff but bagel I think mosh bagel mosh uh, that was uh, if you want to date on that that was uh, March 24th uh, oh. 1990 um, a Sunday afternoon and the bagels were from um, I don't remember that the bakery though the bonos the bonos yeah, we threw out dozens of bagels yeah. uh, while we were playing as part but, uh, of the bagel mosh. But I think also like there was ever I don't you know there was never any fights. I think um, I think it was important. I think we consciously made an effort to not be like have the experience that we saw other places, like especially like City Gardens, where you'd have like skinhead wall of death and stuff like that. You know, I think it was possible in the movie theater anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think just in time there's some skinheads that show up, but it was never. There was never any kind of like um, it was. It was kind of like a safe place to go. You never felt like, like threatened there. At least that I'm aware of. Where yeah. it was like an uncomfortable situation where you'd go to a chill city gardens. Now obviously it was much bigger scale and the bands were bigger and stuff like that. But it was, you know, some of the shows were kind of sketchy. And even in Philly, certain shows at Revival were sketchy. And I think we wanted to do the kind of the exact opposite of that, where it was getting uh, uncomfortably violent. And you know, it wasn't what we were interested in at all. But we still wanted to have that music and have that, you know, the excitement and all the energy, but without all the mindless violence and the stupidity that we saw pretty much that late 80s, early 90s span where it was just, you know, straight was running its course and uh, these stupid bands were just, you know, There's no, there's no and, kickboxing or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, this might be jumping ahead a little bit to, to Cabbage Collective, but, but the idea of how to diffuse those situations before they even occur, uh, which for, for us is in the Cabbage Collective incarnation was have delicious food there, uh, you know, have tables of zines and have like a lot of really fun uh, activities, but really just the kind of just the thought of like, here's all of this free food that you can eat that creates the sense of community, which sort of... Uh, de-emphasizes any of the violent aspects um, and just creates a friendly environment, which you weren't going to, city gardens are not going to be serving you vegan chili, you know, and, and no one's friends there because the, it's a terrible fucking place. Uh, but we should probably... Yeah, well, but, but you can't posture quite the same way without anonymity. Like when it's like, yeah. oh, these are the people who I, I know. I'm in a movie theater in suburban New Jersey. Like... Yeah, it's just not going to happen. You can't yeah. play. Yeah, and it's really just game. all of South Jersey's weird people who don't fit in, who are all friendly with each other, and and there's I, yeah, like Chris said, I don't remember any fights. There was no need for security. It was everybody was just really friendly with each other. And as far as the context of the time, it was also the time when there was a lot of Nazi skinheads around, like a lot of violence. All the places that we went to in Philly, 
Uh, four shows had mostly been shut down by that point because of, you know, riots or too many fights with skinheads. Uh, random show spaces in South Jersey or Pennsylvania that would pop up towards the end of that time, like around 1990, 91, 92. Uh, you know, those places were always having riots with Nazis, you know, like the AC skins in Atlantic City or like Stockton State College. Yeah, I, mean, I went to. Uh, did you go to the Murphy's Law serial killers show with me at Club Pizzazz '88? There was a serial killers. I was not at the that Club Pizzazz show. I think serial killers played that show. I know that it was Murphy's Law, but the but there was a bottle fight in the parking lot there uh, between the, the the skinheads who had watched too much Geraldo and you know, the punks, and it was a nasty scene, and this was one of the first shows I ever went to. Majority won. I think it was the show that they played. That was the show that I was at, that we were at together, where that happened, Uh, where their van window got busted out because someone threw a brick that went over our heads and (laughs) threw their window. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. 13-year-old me was scared shitless. (laughs) And I think with the the Cabbage Collective, um, I think it maybe wasn't conscious at the time, but maybe... It, it, you know, subconsciously we did it, um, is that, you know, when we first do it, first started doing shows at the uh, Unitarian Church, it was a big space and there was a stage and stuff, and, you know, we didn't use the stage because the space was so large, but also I think we kind of wanted to have everyone on the same level, uh, the bands on the floor, and some of it was due to, like, you know, the equipment and, you know, our PA system and stuff like that, but I think also it was like, like, not having the bands on the stage, everyone sit on the ground watching above and things like that and uh you know there was times where maybe we should have had bands on the stage because there's so many people there but i think in some ways you know at that time period if, you know if you go back to the early 90s i mean all the shows suddenly everyone was doing shows on the floor I mean, there was no stage was like this bad thing you know what i mean it was like <laughs> no no bands played on the stage if you if you're in a band and you went to a club and there was a stage, you said, we're going to play on the floor. That's how it was. <laughs> Otherwise, you're a rock star. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then, like, you know, for this, three, this little time period, it was like that for a couple of years, and then it, it changed. But I think I think that was important. I think because it, I don't know, it just made it more, I don't want to say intimate, because that's, that's kind of, it, it just seemed like it was a much more of, like, a everyone was kind of, because uh, I guess, in it together and kind of just kind of, um, you know, it was like a, a little secret level. society, basically. Our little, our little community that was ours, and uh, we wanted to keep it special and something that we cared about, and you know, kind of take care of it and things like that. Well, okay, so I feel like we keep we keep sort of flirting with with things. So maybe I should just uh, let's let's get into more. Like, counterproductive was, I think, is on one, one level is interesting and important because it was. It represented a, a change. It was an alternative, to some degree, of what had come before, at least in the in the Philadelphia area. So, um, I want to talk a bit about like w- about some of the items that made it different. Um, but I also want to talk about how it came together. Um, do you guys want to talk about? Were you influenced as as you were beginning to start this idea of doing shows as Cabbage Collective with intentional? Uh, an agenda, sort of. Uh, were you influenced by other venues? Like, you mentioned ABC in Rio, and I know in 1989, when you graduated high school, you went out to California and spent some time at Gilman Street and stuff, and were you influenced by these other uh, venues? Yeah, that were, yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. yeah. I mean, for me, yeah, coming back from, from uh, Bay Area, and then I was also in Los Angeles, seeing Gilman Street Project, uh, 
was a huge influence because I thought this is what I would love to see in Philadelphia. I'm not going to be living in this place, but to bring something like this back would be fantastic because this is what the city needs, something run by, you know, by the kids, for the kids, rather than um, a club being rented from people who really don't care about you uh, and really just want to make some money off of you. Uh, and ABC was the, was the same thing. Um, you know, it was run in, in a way that seemed to be entirely in keeping with the, the ethos, the principles of punk that were really important. So there was just, I just, my thought was, there's no reason why Philly can't have the same thing. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, the we, well, Chris and I moved to Philly in 93. I moved to Philly in 93. I think you moved there the same year. Uh, a little after, but I, I think uh, I think we were kind of going into the city of Philly for the first time, like kind of expanding out South Street area, and that in itself was kind of like an experience where it was like realizing this big city that we lived next to our whole lives, but never were really at in really for the most part, except for certain places. And I think that also was kind of like a uh, it was kind of like awakening our senses and seeing new things and stuff like that, and you know. Uh, as Joe was saying, um, when he came back, you know, we were doing shows at the Harwin, and you know, I don't know how it got started, but we decided to, um, I think as we got familiar with Philadelphia, we decided to, you know, look for places to, 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 uh, to do shows and things, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I can't remember how we, we got, found the, uh, First Unitarian Church. I know we were just kind of looking at... Calvary Church? Yeah. Calvary Church. Calvary. Yeah. yeah, Calvary was the the first space that we started using at 48th and Baltimore in West Philly. Uh, then we later moved to the First Unitarian Church at 21st and Chestnut. But I guess it was many people from, um, was it a... The Wooden Shoe? Wooden Shoe, yeah. Probably told, tipped told, us off Because they it. used to do some benefit shows there. And I, I think we went, you know, we went to the Calvary Church, talked to the people, and I guess, you know, basically they're, you know, they're nice people, and that's kind of how it went. You know, we did our first show March 6, 1993. Who played that one? Who played the show? Um, Even I know that. Yeah, I know too. Or at least I know one of the bands. Go ahead. I believe it was, uh, I believe it was Grey House. Yep. And it was, uh... Blank 77. Blank 77. And it was, uh... Hell No. Hell No, yep. Did, uh, the play that one too? And the Stuntman. Yeah, so certainly kind of a diverse... Yeah. You didn't play your second show with Weston? It might have been the Weston Submachine stuntman show. Those first few get a little blurry, <laughs> but it was some combination of, of some weird combination of bands. Uh, it might be worth noting for Train Spotters. What does the name Cabbage Collective mean? We wanted to do the thing as a collective, but I came up with the name of Cabbage Collective because I thought the name of the church was Cavalry Baptist Church. <laughs> so I thought that Cavalry Baptist Church moshed together sounded like Cabbage. But then it's the, there is actually no Baptist in the name of the church. This is Calvary <laughs> Church. So, but Cabbage Collective sounded nice enough anyway. I don't. I don't want to box you guys in too much. But I mean, just maybe for context, depending on who's listening to this, like I feel like we touched on something that maybe is worth getting your guys' thoughts on. Like today, I think it's almost taken for granted, or it's such a common thing to think. In 1989, putting a sign up on the wall of your kid run like punk run club saying like no homia no homophobia no sexism or racism or we're only gonna have certain door door admission prices or we're not gonna allow violent dancing like that that was new 
Like, that was an intentional thing that, you know, wasn't really an established thing. And, um, you know, not to say hanging up a sign saying no sexism, stop sexism, but, like, that was a gesture that was new. It certainly says it's not welcome here. Uh, right. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you guys about, like, this is a bit of a, they were intentional, there's a, it's partially an agenda that you guys approached to booking shows that I think is, is significant. Um, and you sort of talked about it a bit in terms of the violence at shows, but um, maybe, I don't know, tell us more about like what, what were you trying to create in what, a different kind of a show space? Um, you mentioned bringing in food and, and it sounds like you were trying to accentuate the community angle. But yeah, yeah. So I mean, just, well, go ahead. Uh, as I was going to say, it's, you know, that it kind of, we started to formulate these ideas with the heroin, a lot of it based on, uh, yeah, reading these SEMA reports and stuff like that and Maximum Rock and Roll and uh, starting to go to shows at, like, ABC No Rio that was of a similar mentality. Uh, and But then also coming out of, like, you know, listening to bands like Seven Seconds who have songs about racism and sexism and homophobia and things like that and conflict who were a huge influence on me and, you know, uh, having songs about fighting the cops and... Uh, <laughs> You know, animal liberation and, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy concepts that I had never even imagined. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, and then also going to shows that were really violent uh, early on. Uh, it kind of, I think, put these seeds in our heads and, you know, Joseph went out to San Francisco in 89. Uh, that was around the time we were starting to Harwin. Uh, so... You know, all of these forces kind of coming together in some of the early shows that we went to at ABC, you know, seeing like Spitboy and Downcast and, uh, you know, countless other great bands from that New York ABC band or uh, ABC scene, huh? Nausea. Yeah, Nausea, you know, Born Against, whatever, like tons of interesting bands and just that space itself uh, influenced us into you know, yeah, starting to figure out some sort of, uh, uh, how we wanted to organize these shows that really kind of gelled together more in the Cabbage Collective with, uh, it being very intentional in the way that we wanted to do it and, uh, you know, reaching out to other people to call for this, uh, punk picnic in, uh, Washington Square to talk about starting this new show collective yeah I wanted to I mean ask yeah. about, like, one of the things you guys did was you didn't just start hatching ideas on your own like you called you flyered for a, a meeting in the park of like punks right yeah. like, just an open Philly call yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. kind of shows do you want right I mean tell us about that first meeting and like who came and stuff I, or what that was like I mean I, I think a lot of the people who came to that thing ultimately became an active part of the group I mean yeah. we, the you know the three of us sit here representing the Cabbage Collective and, and I think that along with Sean Costillo, who's, who's importance. And Jen Langham. Jen Langham. The importance of the Super is tremendous. So, you know, we, we, the five of us, say, would have been the core, but there were also a lot of really active participants, and I think a lot of them came out to this meeting, because the idea was that if we were going to do this thing for this punk community, we really needed to find out who, who else was interested and wanted to be a part of it and how it should run. And, and, and going back to the sign on the door, I think that part of defining who we were was defining who we were not. Um, that part of the branding was saying these are the things that 
what are what we're not about. Uh, so if this is something that's of, of interest to you, then this is probably not the scene for you. Um, Which has always been very prevalent in punk. Yeah, uh, and I think I think also um, at the time, like so, our like South Jersey and uh, I guess maybe Philly and stuff. The area was at the time it was it was getting inundated with this like violent. The shows were just violent, like a, this such a knucklehead, you know, hardcore tough guy macho bullshit stuff at the shows, and uh, it, it it just. It sucked because, you know, we lived for shows. I mean, that's what you did. You just lived to go to shows, and then every show was the same, you know, a bunch of meatheads just beating the shit out of each other. And I think, you know, we wanted to, like, weed through all that stuff to get to the music. And I think we had, was one of the reasons why we, we specifically wanted to do it our way because we were sick and tired of, of all this nonsense that we were going on at shows we attended. It was just annoying. It was just... It was, it was you, you know, you're, you're hearing all this music you really like, you're reading all these, these great scenes and all this stuff, but you go to the shows and it's like, it isn't happening. You're seeing this, it's just not occurring. And, you know, we, for, you know, we just, I guess, decided we were just going to do it ourselves and we just did it. And, you know, it worked out for, it worked out for us, you know, and uh, it was, you know. Was I think the, the thought in having a, a meeting of folks was that, if we feel this way, surely there are others who feel the same way, who are coming into this thing and maybe leaving it in a short time because it's not living up to what they thought that it was going to be. Because it's supposed to be a, a community of outsiders, and these were people who were ostracized for a variety of reasons, not just because of their bad taste in music. Um, so when they come into this thing, they immediately get propelled out because they you know, don't appreciate someone kickboxing them in the fucking head. Um, that, that scene loses this potentially vital, creative, interesting person. But if those people get together and decide that they want to do a thing that caters to them and to anyone who wants to come in, provided that they don't want to you know, engage in all manner of bad behavior, then I think you get something that's far more vital because you've got people who are, who are genuinely creative and feel safe. And at the same time, you know, this was, this was early 93. We were new to the city uh we knew there hadn't been any kind of diy type shows in the city for a while on a consistent basis uh you know we wanted to start doing this thing but we wanted to reach out and get yeah input from other folks see who you know who else was interested in this what their ideas were uh and from that uh we came up with this manifesto. You did. Uh, and I think it's important that everyone hear uh, what yeah. your manifesto was. I don't know if you guys... Would, do you want to go through it, the three of you, reading this out to people? We could, we could, do, a, we could do a round table. Uh, I think you should. Starting with Blue Bowl. Number one, the Cabbage Collective goals. To provide a safe, relaxed environment in which to enjoy punk, hardcore, alternative shows. Number two to create a truly alternative venue not run by profit-oriented individuals and held at sleazy bars or greedy clubs. Number three, to create a non-hierarchical decision-making body composed of anyone interested in taking part. Number four, to put together all-ages shows with low admission fee, generally $5. To provide an environment free of racism, sexism, homophobia, macho aggression, alcohol, drugs, or smoke. Two, whenever possible, provide free or very cheap food that is both healthy and environmentally safe. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. Uh, Doesn't mean it has to taste good. <laughs> I think I that's think what we're laughing bad. about. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> to provide a forum for political speakers, artists, activists, or anyone with something to say. 
to showcase both local and national talent commonly overlooked by profit-minded venues. Uh, number nine, to create a caring, active community of individuals. Number ten, to promote the DIY, in parentheses, do-it-yourself ethic on the most grassroots level. Everyone, regardless of race, sex, sexual preference, age, physical state, or musical preference, will be encouraged to take part in the collective and not remain a passive consumer. Number 11, to keep anyone who is interested informed of how this process works. All financial matters will be a matter of public record and all aspects <laughs> of the process kept open for discussion. Only by being open can we be a threat by example. Uh, number 12, to give bands, zine, editors, record sellers, and anyone working on a DIY level a place to peddle their wares. Should we read number 13 together, all four yeah. of us? Number, number 13, 13, this is not a fucking click. click. <laughs> <laughs> now, two of those stand out to me a lot that I have actual questions about. Because um, I think when you drop a manifesto like that and pr or print it on the back of your flyers or on half of your uh, landscape-oriented flyer, um, <laughs> Two things stand out. One of them is number 11, that whole idea of being a threat by example, which I think was a big part of the zeitgeist of, of at least one strain of the punk scene of the time. Yeah. Um, and I also am curious about, you know, again and again, you kind of touch on these aspects of uh, the problems you run into when punk is, is the square peg of punk is squeezed into the round hole of commercial alcohol-based venues, which is the traditional rock model. Um I don't know. I'm curious to hear about that. What was the? What, what, what was it like? You know, were you, did you feel like you were in? Because I know that previously you guys also dealt with, like you guys did shows at JC Dobbs. You guys would occasionally work with Rick Black Hole, right? Or mm, not? Really. Well, you certainly got uh, words from him at some point, right? This yeah. Town yep. isn't big enough for the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I certainly played that up at the time. <laughs> yep. I like to fight with people, and that he seemed like a fine person to fight with because he seemed like a goof. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were young. A lot of us that were involved with it were straight edge, and bands that we wanted to see sometimes were playing at 21 and over shows, and it pissed us off. You know, we wanted the shows to be for everybody. Uh, we didn't like the you could smoke at shows and you know that's not only affecting yourself it was affecting all of us it pissed us off <laughs> you know there were a lot of things that pissed us off that we wanted to be we wanted to set an example that was different from you know what the norm had become uh or you know at that point out of necessity for a lot of bands was the only option of places to play you know either a big club or no show or also a lot of bands were just skipping over philly at that time because there wasn't anywhere to play if you were smaller or DIY or, uh, yeah, anything like that. You know, it's almost a given now that uh, clubs, venues have the smoking is not permitted almost you know everywhere in the country. I suppose. I mean, certainly yeah. Philly and you know, a lot of other places. Uh, but at the time, that that absolutely wasn't the case. Right. And it was you come back. You know, I remember like blowing my nose and my snot would be black, black from people. Yeah, yeah oh, disgusting yeah. secondhand All the time. smoke. Um, and I just just to address the threat by example, uh, which I see was you know put in, in capitals on there. I was hugely influenced by the Martin Sprouse edited book Threat by Example, um, and I I thought that like this is this is a book that, that had this big influence on me, and I wanted to see these things put into action. I'm almost think like in doing this thing, Loud Fast Philly, the influence of that book is still there because it kind of worked in the same way. Like here's people talking about their lives 
and it's meant to inspire people to, to do stuff. Yeah, and I think also, you know, and it's 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 stated in here kind of, you know, um, but subtly, but, you know, political. I mean, it wasn't just like we didn't like smoke. It was like, a, you know, a politically driven also is that, you know, the whole, you know, tobacco industry and everything about it, you know, with the alcohol and everything else is that there's also a political aspect to it. Um, you, 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 some of it now you can read now and kind of laugh because it seems, you know, I don't want to say simplistic, but it's like, you know, it, it's, it, it's, um, um, trying to think of the right word, you know, maybe overly idealistic, but, it, you know, we took it seriously. I mean, it was like, you know, everything in here we, we took very seriously, and a lot of it was political. I mean, uh, I guess we, I, I think at the time, Cabbage Collective and, you know, the band we were in, you know, people, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it's just everyone, you know, they're so serious, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not fun and things like that, and, um, you know, but for us, I mean, we never imposed it on anyone, but I think this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to, you know, kind of have our say and do our part and kind of express ourselves and, you know, maybe, you know, uh, you know, doing this was one of the ways we did that. So it was like, you know, a conscious, you know, in some way, a, like a political statement in a way. I think a lot of these ideas are taken as a given now. Uh, and and weren't at the time this sort of you know the transparency and the, and trying to do things environmentally correctly um, and the inclusion of people was just not something that was really happening in in a lot of clubs or venues at the time. But I think that in, in many aspects of our society now these these tenets these ideals are quite common. I mean I think that you know say for your co-op bull like you know this is prob probably some of it is not entirely dissimilar from the sort of um, groundwork of, of something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is something that we've, we put a lot of work into then, and is, uh, yeah, there are a lot of spaces, such as the co-op, that, you know, is trying to be inclusive and trying to be welcoming to a whole host of different people. Uh, some of the folks that, such as myself, who, you know, have been a part of the co-op for, as an example, uh, I've taken a lot of what I've learned from punk and kind of incorporated that into my work at the co-op to try and, uh, you know, further those ideals outside of the punk community in creating, creating welcoming spaces and kind of educational opportunities for people to learn about food and nutrition and, you know, environmental sustainability and uh, supporting local farmers and like all of these different other things that, you know, this whole... Yeah, a lot of the politics that I learned from punk rock and uh, ethics that I've kind of uh, adopted through that also, you know, now still play out in my life in other ways. Not to get too far ahead, but... <laughs> you just but, got to the end. But uh, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think... Did it run on tape? Oh, no, 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 no. I was just saying... I think one thing that's really important in that was, you, you know, I think unique for us but it, you know it started happening everywhere is that you know you go go to our sh you go to the show and you know everyone knows each other and the bands are playing but you also like we, like you know you had people selling records and zines and stuff i mean it was like it was like a almost like a bizarre <laughs> like a 
you know, it was like this whole community, and it, you know, for for that, you know, the time period, it was all it was all new, and it was exciting because you would you go to a show, and you know, someone's this new zine, whatever it is, is out. Out. Does he have? It? Someone has it, and it's just it was it was exciting. It was just like a, it was um, you know, and and for some people who maybe didn't live in Philly or had to travel down from somewhere else that didn't have like you know. A bunch of uh, you know shows in their area. It was probably, you know, I, I, it was probably pretty exciting to see, to see that. I mean, it, you know, it it was. I, I think it was unique for a while. I mean, no one did, did this stuff in the city for you know when we first started. So we also had the advantage of a vast amount of space in this church, which, which a lot of clubs wouldn't have. So we could say like anybody who wanted to set something up could do it because we just had tables and tables and tables there and chairs so that you could just really do whatever you wanted with this giant space. And it kind of also filled it in a little bit because otherwise it would be a band performing in you know, a vast cavernous <laughs> environment to you know varying sizes of, of people. And we were by no means the first people to do DIY shows, but uh, at our time in this area, we were the first doing this type of DIY shows. and. Uh, it did influence other folks, you know, there was like the Country Time Collective that started up and the Westchester Youth League and, uh, you know, a bunch of other like kind of <laughs> smaller town. Uh, Do you want to say something about the Westchester Youth League? Like, okay, <laughs> nope. you make it a face over there, I see that face. Some good stuff. Uh, but yeah, like other groups kind of started up similar projects in their areas, uh, which was flattering. Like I, I, I told Joe um, about like you know one of our shows um, was that you know we had a show where you know our friend was rolling like sushi and uh, at a show <laughs> and this is like quality sushi and he was like a trained chef and he's rolling sushi and uh, Tony Joy from um, uh, Universal or Armageddon at the time um, you know he's eating sushi and like the place was packed and it was just like that the moment was just like it was it was surreal because. I've never seen. I don't think. Tell me, sh tell me about a show somewhere where they were like make rolling sushi for free at, at a hard show <laughs> anywhere. Maybe even in the world. Maybe not maybe even in Japan. Japan is that yeah, maybe, maybe not even in Japan. And I thought it was just, it was like it was like it was unique in that sense. And maybe the sushi happened only once or twice and stuff. And maybe the the food it was like real intense at the beginning and faded out. And, but still, the the fact that like it was it was no one did that at least around here and. Uh, it was kind of like it was interesting, and I think the bands actually liked it too. I think we got a reputation like that. It was like a cool place to play. They knew there was no bullshit going on. It was going to be like a cool show. You know, they're going to, you know, probably have a decent turnout and a really amazing there. PA. Yeah, but also PA. You know, you know. But it did kind of put Philly back on the map again as a a destination for shows between New York and DC. Uh, you know, where for a long time bands would just pass over Philly because there wasn't anywhere or nowhere consistent. Right. And I think it was also fun, too, to call, you know, you have these, at the time, still there's a level of, you know, reverence for people in bands that they're like, oh my God, you know, certain, you know, and you call them and you get them, their mother on the phone. <laughs> and like, yeah. can I talk to so-and-so? Uh, uh, Johnny, uh, someone on the phone for you wants to talk about a show, you know, and you you talk to these people at, a, at your level and it kind of took away all that mystique and you became like, you know, it, it, they're they do they play good they make good music and whatever, but they're still they're just they're not any better than me basically, and like they're not like special people and stuff like that. And I think that was, you know, 
I think that I, I think a, a lot of I got a lot out of that because I think before that the bands were like, you know, before and then after, you know, on stages and like, you know, it was it was annoying. You know, the one thing we definitely did not have anything to do with if any band ever came to us with any kind of rider or contract or anything like that, we were like. And just, just get the fuck away from it. We're not going to even touch it and deal with it. Go talk to Rick. I don't know. I, I think it happened once or twice. I can't remember with the bands, but it was like, no way. I mean, the dumbest thing. We don't, we don't really it, need it. It was even like an insult. To us, it was like, this is, this is nonsense. There's a thousand other cool bands that would like to play with us we can just have instead. <laughs> um, I want to come back to, you know, you guys were talking about, like, the back of the room at the Calvary Church where there would just be this bazaar, as you put it, and I, I, you know, I remember, I have notes here where, you know, people, there's record distros, zines, patches, I, Eric Wareheim selling VHS tapes of, like, the show from last week. <laughs> I know for a fact someone once tried to sell their mother's old microwave. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it was, it was really fun, as I remember it, but, like, I'm curious, did it, was there ever a point where it felt like a caricature to you guys, like, like look what happened to our experiment or were you or were you just tickled by how it turned out uh, I never felt that way uh, through the years that we did most of our shows especially at the the two churches Calvary and uh, First Unitarian it always it felt real and it felt uh, you know legit and honest in what we were doing uh, to me at least no I, I absolutely agree yeah I mean obviously there were some shows better than others but I think this, there was the sure. same you know, we every show the same. I guess the idea, you know, we wanted to do something different. So if the show wasn't that great, you know, it was still fun to do, and there was plenty of great shows, and you know, it was just the whole aspect of it. There were times where where everybody might be sitting on the floor with their backpacks that you would think wouldn't it be great if they're all jumping on top of each other and going crazy <laughs> and not you know like very studiously and seriously you know stroking their imaginary beards listening to the band. <laughs> and then outside of the, uh, maybe this is in another question, but uh, you know we also kind of tried to reach outside of just the the show formula and we did a few spoken word events and had some punk picnics and uh maybe that was it did we do anything else i think those were the main I, I think things it, yeah yeah apparently you should have uh, done the punk rock flea market which is where the real money is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had like tiny version in the back but not quite the thing that it is now <laughs> um i'm curious when you guys were talking also about some of the intention intentionality between how you approached organizing your shows was there um was there something intentional about how you went about choosing a venue um i'm thinking and this is partially from i guess this question comes partially from my experience seeing it first as a kid who did grow up in the suburbs uh coming in here with other kids who had really come from the suburbs like i may have grown up in like over derby and stuff but i was getting rides from kids from westchester to a lot of these shows and you know 48th and Baltimore Avenue 20 years ago was <laughs> very different than the roller rink in Havertown. And I'm wondering, like, was... I know Positive Force in D.C. has sometimes spoken about trying to intentionally bring people to a different area to see... Because you think about community a different way. And I'm curious if that was ever part of your... Uh, I'm glad you brought up Positive Force because they were also an influence that I had kind of forgotten about uh, to mention. Uh... 
I would say as far as the like location specifically, it was mostly just out of you know necessity. That was we went with what we found. Uh, we didn't choose West Philly because it was West Philly uh, to start doing shows at Calvary or downtown because it was downtown to you know use the Unitarian Church. Uh, but were you intentionally trying to move off of South Street, for instance? Like, the, the kind of go-to punk conveyor belt? I think it was more like Bull said, where this is just what was available to us, and this is what we used, and once we established a decent enough relationship with the folks running things over there, then that's that's a good enough home. And it was any. affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was cheap. South Street probably would have been prohibi- prohibitively expensive for us at the time if we could even find a space there that was willing to do all ages shows. And also, no, we wouldn't have to, a place out here, we don't really have to deal with cops and, and other folks who might not be so happy that we're set up doing the things. I mean, you know, buried in the basement of a gigantic church at 48th and Baltimore, there's really nobody to complain about the noise. Now, there were later, at the end of our relationship with that church, there were issues with, with people being outside, drinking, people doing some bad shit inside. But in general, we were, we were far enough off the grid that we wouldn't be bothered by the forces that tend to shut down shows. And, and certainly were a factor, you know, the shows that you were doing at Stalag, you know, where you had a police station right there, and, you know, that was an issue. And at the same time, we were also trying to be respectful of, you know, the neighborhood that we were doing stuff in. Uh, you know, we didn't have people drinking at our shows anyway, but if someone did inside the shows, if someone showed up and was drinking outside, we would ask them not to do that because... You know, for our own reasons, you know, we wanted to use the space and we wanted to have a good relationship with the space, but we also don't want to, you know, trash a neighborhood that at the time we didn't live in uh, or, you know, piss off the neighbors for no good reason. So now, well, since we touched on it, one milestone for better or worse in Cabbage Collective is the Spitboys Citizen Fish show where you did lose access to use the Calvary Church. Um, and, you know, someone might have seen it, at least then, maybe as being a slightly different kind of show or attracting a slightly different kind of crowd. But I'm wondering, I don't know, if, uh, you guys who were more, in, you guys were certainly more involved than I, I mean, you were doing it. Did, did it, was there an, an, was there an inevitability of, of things coming to a close at Calvary, did you feel, or it was really just... You know, you, you two had more of a relationship with those, that, those people. Is that the final show? Yeah, that was it. We got yeah. kicked out for that show because, yeah, people were drinking outside and the neighbors got upset and uh, somebody tagged the church outside and the church got upset. Uh, and this was not our normal audience. This was because because of Citizen Fish, it had drawn in a lot of crusties who normally wouldn't come to our shows and didn't, you know, some of them didn't care at all whatever our rules or ways of behaving were. Yeah, so, yeah, we did get kicked out of that show. I was surprised. I didn't, one, I didn't expect there to be problems ever at our shows at that point. Uh, I mean, still, it was only, you know, a year or so into us doing shows at that location. Uh, but uh, but I was surprised, you know, that, that there was a problem and that we got kicked out. But it wound up kind of being a blessing in disguise because then uh, <coughs> uh, we talked to the folks at the Unitarian Church. I believe Chris was the first to talk to them, uh, uh, which also came through the um, the Philly anarchist scene who had done part of the uh, 93 anarchist gathering was held at the Unitarian Church. Uh, 
so we got contact information from some of those folks. Uh, uh, we, we talked to the folks at the church. They were into the idea of us doing shows, and uh, we started there, and that kind of, you know, that space maybe doesn't do shows anymore at this point. But uh, well, I'm sure they'd like to. I'm sure they'd <laughs> like to. Uh, but, you know, for nearly two decades, uh, did a ton of shows and, you know, grew into our fives main uh, show space for many years and before the spaghetti such. warehouse before the spaghetti <laughs> warehouse <laughs> it's probably one of the best show spaces in the country probably for a while really consistently like a consistent space which is amazing yeah you know, and a lot of it's just being soundproof really you know the, the Citizen Fish show I mean we, we kind of expected the, the crowd to an extent we didn't expect that many of the of the you know crusty punks uh, to come to that show we didn't expect that be it would be like kind of like our worst fear could come true, and it kind of did that. You know, there was like nitwits at the show. You know, I remember having to like forcibly throw someone out, and like closest I've ever came to like punching somebody in the face at the show or any show. And uh, it, you know, it was really kind of like it was irritating because it was like you know, like Jay said, I mean, they, they care about anything. I mean, I don't think they even care about the show. They just go there and like at the time just to. No, a lot of these people they, were not contributing. They were just, of this scene. they were just like any other, you know, you know, they're like, a, they're like, you know, fraternity uh, brothers or sorority sisters, just with mohawks and, uh, you know, uh, ripped jeans and stuff like that, and smelled bad. I remember, so, I was shocked that people were drinking on the steps. I remember, like, it was just blew my mind after, yeah, what what had been established over the past. Two years, and we did everything we could to stop it. I mean, we went countless arguments and stuff. Um, I think if we didn't do anything, it probably would have been worse. Uh, we did, you know. I think it was like, I, I think I thought at the end of the show, I was like, oh, okay, you know, everything's cool and stuff. It's annoying, but we, you know, and then we found out, you know, that kid, you know, tag and that kind of stuff, which was, which was the thing we were trying to avoid. I mean, like, it was like the everything we were, we didn't want to happen. Like that, that was just like. Even though the show was a huge show with tons of people and you know big show and stuff, it was it, that element just kind of was everything we did not want to occur, and it was just so many things going on that you know we did the best we could, but you know it just you can't control everything. So it wasn't like we were gonna go out there and beat the shit out of every single person and <laughs> cause fights and get our friends together and. You know, well, death is get it, the credit. You know, <laughs> call our muscle from uh, the South South Jersey and uh, come out out there and kick some ass and stuff. So it did push us in a good direction, though. Uh, you know, moving into the Unitarian Church, we started doing all of our shows there, and then we started doing some shows at the Act Up Warehouse downtown. Uh, a little bit later, we started doing some shows at Stalag Thirteen in West Philly again. Uh, we did a show or two at Drexel. You know, there wound up being a, a handful of new spaces for us, uh, some one-off, some, you know, establishing relationships with uh, the Fake House in West Philly, also uh, Kill Time in West Philly. You know, there were a lot of other spaces that we uh, started to use and kind of expand our scope to some degree uh, in getting new bands in and uh, of greater variety of spaces for different size shows and uh yeah bringing in some new new folks with those different locations my biggest regret is not getting having fugazi player shows we tried like they played <laughs> a show at the uh, chocadero and after the show um we went back i think it was 
I don't know, bowling, I'm sure. I don't know, were you there for that? I was behind it. I don't think I no, I don't think I interacted with the band at all. Maybe it was just me and Bull. We went back and I was, you know, trying to talk to uh, uh Ian and Gay and stuff, but all and all these kids getting autographs and it was just for kind of just you know, every every thirty seconds you ask a question and, and it was just like became impossible. But it was like, you know, my I try, I tried, you know, I tried to talk to them and then we made a couple of phone calls I think and it just never Yeah, we tried a few times. You know, and I think uh that was the one thing I should I wish we could have done. I think uh, I don't know where we would have done it, but um, that that have been like kind of like a you know pretty pretty awesome to do that. But uh, you know at least I uh, at, least we, at least we tried. Even though I felt like an idiot in front of a bunch of ten year olds <laughs> trying to get Ian's attention, you know, for autographs and stuff. So now, when you guys when you lost Calvary Church and, and moved to start doing most of your stuff in First Unitarian. Um, I'm curious about two things, I guess. The first thing is, just as like a, to use that as a timestamp, what was the status of of the actual... Coll- how much of Cabbage Collective was a collective at that point? Like, were other folks like Jan or Sean super involved at that point? Or at, by then, had it sort of really become focused just on the three of you guys alone? I think it was always the five of us as Cabbage Collective. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I just said those five. Are there other people <coughs> I'm leaving out? There, there were other... Well... There were other people, certainly. Uh, I mean, you want to mention some names of different people who were uh, you know, big, active contributors. Uh, I mean, you don't our, remember their names. I mean, a lot of our friends, like you know, and like in like like possibly like Adam and uh, Jeff and our friends like John and Andy, like friends from Philly and stuff. I mean, they would help out as far as like cl- helping clean it up after the show, getting you know, um, you know, if anything had to be done as far as moving stuff, you know, you know. Claire. There was a bunch of there was a bunch of people yeah, there. Yeah, Mon Crass came Hole, to all the shows. Mon like Crasshole. Yeah. You, know, you you were there. Uh, Bob Chicken. Yeah, uh, John Paul. I mean, I think that like yeah, the people who came to the shows people. were always really happy to, to take part in like all of that little aspects of it. So you know whether it's like breaking down tables or cleaning floors, I think that was the 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 collectivey bit of it. Towards yeah. the very end, you know, the ninety eight, ninety nine, there was one or two shows that that we did uh, under the name of the Cabbage Collective that was maybe just Chris or I uh, after we had essentially stopped doing shows as a group. Uh, but it was just easier to do it that way because it was kind of an established name. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, for through, you know, 93 to 97, 98, uh, it was pretty much the Cabbage Collective was, you know, the core of us. And then... Uh, a pretty good handful of other folks that uh, helped out in various ways. And then, at, like late in the game at the at the first Unitarian, I remember a few shows that were like quasi collaborations of like maybe like where you'd work with Sean and R Five or Robbie Redcheeks or Andrew. Yeah. But it seemed like I mean, was that just a was that sort of a, a thing where they were you you know Cabbage Collective already had. A relationship with the church and a foot in the door, and then you sort of let them use the space. Or were you really collaborating with? with it varied a little bit. Uh, like the show that we did at Drexel, <clears throat> we did a fundraiser show at Drexel. Uh, there was a co- collaboration between a few different groups. You know, it was KDU, it was us, it was I don't remember who else. Was it the Kid Dynamite thing or, uh, or Lifetime? <clears throat> was it? There was Lifetime. Uh, there was a Lifetime show, and then there was also like a. Um, Shades Apart show, uh, but um, so yeah, there were collaborations, but then also 
uh, once, you know, when we started doing shows in Philly, there wasn't really anything else going on at the time consistently. Uh, and then towards the end, other individuals or groups started to pop up and uh, some of them needed our help getting into the church because the church didn't really want to deal with anyone else. Uh, so, yeah, like when Sean, uh, R5, you know, started doing shows at Stalag, Stalag got shut down, Sean was interested in still doing shows, uh, so we worked together a little bit or, uh, or scheduled his shows for him at the church uh, in the beginning to so uh, that he could do them there, and then eventually, you know, he kind of had a good enough relationship with the church that he could do it on his own. <laughs> it was all grown up. <laughs> um, I guess I want to hear about some of what your guys' memories are about. Does anyone have a favorite show or a most memorable show? Chris Pratt. Um, I, I guess I, maybe the sushi show, just because it was like, <laughs> at the time, it was like, the bands were the popular bands, you know, sort of Armageddon and um, and uh, the San Diego, the other band from San Diego, like and Chuck Arrow, yeah. yeah, and there was just a crazy show and 1.6 band. It was just like, and uh, I think maybe was it Merrill? Merrill. So it was just like at the time, all those bands were really popular. It was a crazy show and bands were crazy and stuff like that. So it was uh, pretty exciting. But yeah, there were a lot of uh, um, you know memorable shows. I mean, I guess uh, the Sleater Kenny show was memorable just because they were kind of obnoxious to us. They had to play a show. I think it was Haverford that night and they were kind of, kind of threw us off. Was that at, that was at Silk City or was that? No, we was, did that at the Unitarian sure. Church. I really had to plead with them to play our show because they, uh, they were, <laughs> they really wanted to cancel it. I was like, look, if you're playing, yeah, I forget if it was Haverford or Bryn Mawr or something. They're like, those kids put no effort into the shows and they're going to pay you a ton of fucking money. We put a ton of effort into our show. We're not going to pay you anything. We're not going to pay you <laughs> shit, but, <laughs> but the show's going to be so good. Uh, I was like, you guys got to play. Like, people were psyched about this. It's actually in the city. There's like, you know, there will be people there. They're really excited to see You don't have a tri, a tri college ID. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, as frustrating as that was, uh, I was still really excited about that show because I was very excited to see them having really liked. Heavens to Betsy and Excuse uh, 17 and uh, Sleater Kenny were fairly new at the time. We're just starting to kind of blow up. Uh, so yeah, as annoying as that show was, I also really enjoyed it. Uh, one of my favorites was the, the show we did at the Fake House that was uh, a veil. It was a Conoclast last show. Uh, <coughs> uh, Max Colby played and Spirit Assembly. I thought, oh, I thought Policy 3 played too, no? No, we didn't play that one. Uh, I think it was Spirit Assembly. That uh, show was fantastic. We were, we were afraid that the floor was going to collapse. shaking. <laughs> a constant fear at Fake Yo, Jesus, I've not seen those goddamn flowers in a million years. I mean, I just <laughs> pulled out a stack of uh, old Cabbage Collective flyers uh, to refresh our memories. Good God. Uh, Echo Board, Jennifer Blowdry. Very 90s flyer. <laughs> yeah. uh, the first few shows that we did that uh, Universal Order of Armageddon kind of hopped on, uh, they would show up to our shows and be like, hey, we're here. Do you mind if we you know, play a couple songs? And uh, the first time we were like, ah, sure, whatever. And 
and they were great. And then you know the next two times or something, we were like, yeah, totally, you can you can play because uh, they're just so entertaining and energetic. Oi poloi, oi poloi. The show that we did at the uh, Act Up space that Ass Factor Four played, I really enjoyed. That's when your uh, friends showed up, right? The bike cops. <laughs> some, some bike cops showed up to that one and pretended to mosh, uh, <laughs> which was entertaining. Then we had a uh, man is the bastard, uh, FOD and brutal truth play the uh, act up space too. When these two guys unfortunately were on tour with Policy of Three, uh, and yes, that was a fantastic show. Which uh, you were there. It's very um, hot. Yeah. There's yeah, the flyer like that, right there. That, that, yeah, they, they sent the, you know, this is the way the flyer must look. <laughs> there must be a giant white space in the middle and little skulls <laughs> at the top. So do you know that uh, Joan Jett was inducted onto Avenue of the Arts, got her star uh, shortly after the show? So I actually have her autograph on my Cabbage Collective Man of the Bastard. Damn. Torches of Rome show was a great show. Yeah, yeah there'll be a piece uh, of footage. With that... C and Red and Spirit Assembly. And when I got prophecy, and I was, I I was watching prophecy. that video of that. I, I'd forgotten about that band, but I was like, "Damn, these guys are really good." Well, uh, yeah, I always kind of consider that the the last of our big shows is the, so, like the full force collective. But June twenty seventh, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, read off that lineup. Uh, Spaz, brutal truth, his hero's gone, black army jacket, and special <laughs> guest Adam and his package yeah, from which, Philadelphia, which featured one of our are a very few fights and it was a great one because uh, I, I was going through this video footage recently and there's a guy I had shot this from up on the top like on some kind of riser at Stalag and there was this Mohawk Madness guy with his shirt off who was drunk who was swinging his arms around hitting people over and over again and people kept pushing him and as the show progressed they were getting more angry with this guy until finally there's a point in the show and I was so happy to capture some video where some members of the audience just take him out and beat him up and remove him from the place and, and I was so happy to see that and when I had talked to Eric from Philadelphia about it, I wanted to have that little piece of footage in there for the live event he said uh, I don't know I thought it made things look too violent and gave the wrong impression so I didn't want to put it in there but uh, I kind of liked it I think you should you should be able to celebrate that you had a good five year run with no fights yeah. with no other yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, with that show uh, well, he just showed me you know, Born Against Bug Out Society matter of fact that was it um the Harwin. The Harwin, yeah. January 4th, 1992. Uh, I want to hear about a show that I know Bull missed, because I believe you were on tour with someone, and Joe and Chris had to get the PA over from Jersey. Inclement weather. Is that the yeah. one with factor? the flood? Yeah. yeah. God, that was terrifying. <laughs> Chris, you might as well tell this story. That was, that was, a, that was one, one of the most terrifying tour. experiences of my life. I think I was at Theater or something. Yeah, it was a Policy Theater. That was the heroin show, wasn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, I guess it was with my friend Sean. With Sean. Oh, Sean was still. still like, yeah, he, he was August driving. August 5th, 1993. Very good. We were in San Francisco that day. Uh, nice job. Yeah, so wait, who played the show? I mean, I don't know the exact lineup. It was Heroin, which was like the band. I think EOA played. Didn't, did uh, Current play show. that show? Current, yeah. Yep. It was a massive yeah. rainstorm, and we were driving the P PA over from New Jersey. We had rented it from Jersey. I think the PA off, always or often came from Pretty Jersey. Pretty much always old <laughs> yeah, town music. music. <laughs> yeah, so we were driving on Route 42, and we saw cars floating away. And we thought, <laughs> we were going to float away with the PA, but we have to do this show because we had, we had no money. So... If we didn't do the show, we were afraid we were going to lose a deposit that we had put on the church or something and just have to pay for this thing. 
So we had to get there with the PA and the storm. Who the fuck was going to come out to see this band in this horrible <laughs> storm anyway? I don't know. But like, the, but we just thought we are going to float away with the PA, and that is the end of the Cabbage Collective because none of us have any money to pay for any of the aspects of this this catastrophe. We didn't float away. I remember at some point I think the bridges got shut down from Jersey to Pennsylvania too for a while that day because one of the bands got held up for a while. I remember hearing later. I think it was Current. <clears throat> there was a show but, though, right? We did. Yeah, was shows, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even remember you, you, it being you, a thing. Yeah, like coming from the West. I uh, so this was one of those right regionalized <laughs> storms where we got destroyed and then you got. <laughs> I think. It, I think it's one thing that's kind of, you know, a lot of it's obviously it's a long time ago, so things things change. I mean, you know, but it's like you know we got our our, our PA, which was you know. At the end, we had a bigger PA. We kind of started to get a bigger PA, but we never had like a sound system because we just didn't know how to do it and didn't know anybody. I think John Hills wanted to sound maybe once or twice, I think. Or where? Later on. That's the other person who had a um, PA, in quotes. But, uh, you know, we would go to this, old, this little music store where we used to live, and, and they're like the nice guys, and we we're just, you know, they, they knew us and stuff. And we just go there picked on a Saturday and pick it up and stuff. And everything was like very easy and like, I think it was twenty five dollars that we yeah, paid for the Yeah, everything was very easy and uncomplicated. <laughs> and like, you know, it and, you know, it, it, it was, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, a lot of this is pre-internet and all the other stuff, and it's just kind of, you know, it's just kind of funny looking at it. Like how, you know, you had to do shows then, and of course, before us, I mean, it was even harder. You know, here before we did shows, but it, you know, it was it was a very, you know, lo-fi thing basically so what happened in in the city in the punk scene between you three that led to Cabbage Collective coming run its course or coming to a close well Chris got pregnant (laughs) same old story we'll sort out some gender reassignment he's a good kid for for me it was uh, a lot of the bands that I felt the most affinity with had split up uh and the band that we were playing with had split up. Uh, well, two of the bands that I'd been playing with split up. Uh, and it was starting to transition to a lot more bands uh, looking for bigger venues and uh, having writers uh, and contracts and things like that that we didn't want to deal with. <clears throat> and uh, And then at the same time, there were other options, you know, other people were starting to do shows uh, in a way that there hadn't been before and I didn't feel like the need was there as much uh, anymore. Yeah, I pretty much agree with what Cole said, I mean, it was the same thing, I kind of, after a while it just became, you know, more of that type of thing, I think the uh, kind of like the scene started to shift a little bit at the time. It was getting bigger, more. Pro- I guess I would say more professional, more slick. Maybe maybe slick's a bit word, more professional kind of driven with the bands and stuff. And I really had absolutely no interest in that whatsoever. And I, and I had no ego as far as like someone else is doing shows. I'm going to show them. I'm going to do a, a bigger show and stuff. I didn't really care about that. So it was like, uh, you know, if Sean could do big shows. You know, go. You know, good for him and stuff. Anyone else, I you know, and it just kind of just faded away in that sense. You know, and and other things. You know. Whether like life stuff, like college and that bullshit starts, you know, coming in, affecting things, stuff like that. So, um, but it was it was basically a, kind of just like the scene itself, I think, in a lot of ways. 
in the relationships that were kind of like starting to fade, fade away in some in some aspects. I think as uh, as the collective was starting to fade in by the show that we did, um, uh, the Brutal Truth show <clears throat> um, in '97. Just a few months later, we I did the first Zoom film screening, which was back at the Harwin where where we had begun doing the shows. Um, and it, we weren't, it was only supposed to be a one-off, we had no name, but that thing started to gain steam, so I didn't feel like there was a great gap in my creative output. So it kind of just transitioned from one thing into the other, and that thing took off and, and you know, continues now 16 years later. And, um, and, I had, and even from the beginning of us doing those shows, I wanted to infuse elements of Cabbage Collective into them. So even though it's a completely different type of scene, it's cult film screenings some of the films have some fairly you know, dodgy social or political content but that there would still be some kind of through line in this project that it would in some way at least for my 25% of it reflect some of the punk ethos and operate in the, in the same way and I think that everything that I, I learned in, in Cabbage Collective you know, with these guys and, and the other folks uh, certainly came to the fore in, in doing those events we should, as a side note, we, um, we should have, the Harmon Theater was raised a couple of years ago. It's now Walgreens. Um, that, I think they were, they were, I can't remember how long, but they closed down for a while before it was raised. They were, they were closed yeah. for a while, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's very, very distinctive sets of people who have really strong memories of the Harwin. So there'll certainly be people who remember the Rocky Horror things there, they'll remember the punk shows that we did there, or they'll, there are people who come to the Exhum shows who, who will always say, like, oh, those were the best shows that you ever did. Um, That's crazy. I don't necessarily agree <laughs> that theater was pretty, pretty nasty, but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it certainly gave us a start, and, um, you know, it's a shame that it is what it is now because of all the, the ultimately stemmed out of that one dumpy place run by some completely inept imbeciles. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same with so many, but I mean, Tonight, or last night, Freeway played at the fitness gym run by a former Philadelphia Eagle that is what Stalag used to be. <laughs> God, is that what that is now? Yeah. Uh, and then the Calvary Church, just as a side note, at 48 in Baltimore, right. is still going strong. It's basically <laughs> a community center now. It's a great space. Uh, yeah, you've done benefits for your Mariposa co-op Yeah, the co-op's there. had a, uh, fundraisers there. There's all kind of community groups that have had fundraisers Razors there. There's lots of community groups that have office space there. Uh, so Calvary's going strong, even after they kicked us out. Surprisingly enough. <laughs> yeah, I think we single-handedly like brought back West Philadelphia. Basically, <laughs> a, lot of the realtors, a lot of the realtors and stuff credit us. Like a lot yeah. of the people moved in always. Say, Ken loves us. Cabbage Collective. They did the shows here. This is great. Yeah. Twenty percent more on the uh, down here. Key to the city. <laughs> so on that note, I, I, this is the real question. And it's also an unfair question to anyone who's not a total megalomaniac or from the first generation of American hardcore, which usually means the same thing. Um, 20 years on, what do you see? Uh, do you see the echoes? Do you see the imprint? Do you see a, a Cabbage Collective legacy in the landscape of the Philly, un, I, don't, I don't want to say punk, but maybe underground music, underground art? Basically, punk. <laughs> punk died when we stopped doing shows. Right. So. Uh, that would make this a proper documentary about <laughs> punk if it all ended when we left. Yeah, totally it's over. And then I went into rehab and it was all over. Uh, I, I think... Was, yeah. uh, I would say it lives on in the individuals. Uh, 
more so than maybe the institutions. Uh, well, I, I would say that in interviewing a whole bunch of people, um, I was especially excited to talk to younger folks who were keeping the ethos alive and were doing things that were similar to what we were doing. And whether they were consciously aware of what we did or not wasn't really important to me and wasn't even necessarily that important. The idea was that the torch gets passed on from group to group over the years. You know, I've, in this project, I've talked to people who were significantly older than me who came into punk at the very beginning, people who started doing shows at Abe Stakes and Love Hall and Brenda's Lair and all these places. People come and they, they do their thing and then they kind of pass the torch on to someone else. And what it does, in effect, is keep the ideals and the ethos alive for the next generation. So young folks come in and they see this is the way that it's done. This You can do things well, you can do things ethically, you can do things with kindness, and it'll work. And then they, they go on and do it and then in turn... Um, influence other people down the line. So it never it isn't necessarily important that everybody knows each step along the way, but more that the steps just continue moving forward and that the ideas are kept alive. Uh, so it was incredibly heartening to me to talk to some of the younger folks who, when I talked to them about DIY ethos and punk, that much of what they said was very similar to what um, what we said and what other people said um, and that those ideals were uh, alive and active and vital um, and to me that was great and if, if that could be my contribution just just being part of a step in an ongoing continuum fine and that's one of the things that uh, that makes me happy about this project that I get that I'm excited about it is it is a, a way that uh, you know, that I can learn about some of the stuff that went on in Philly before my time, or, yeah, some of the younger folks can learn about what's going on in Philly before their time, and uh, just see, like, how long it has been going on and how similar a lot of the situations have been, and, uh, you know, it's important to know our history. And there's something that we talked about, Mike, when I did the, the interview with you earlier, which was that, the, the say, the generation of folks that we came up with in, in the 90s, a lot of them have gone on to do really, really great and interesting things. And some of them have nothing to do with punk, but a lot of them still carry those same ideals forward in other areas, be they social or political or, or whatever, you know, but with, uh, with Mariposa, which I think is a really, really great thing that, that does a lot of good for people. Um, I, I think that we we were fortunate um, to to be amongst a lot of really creative and driven people who took something really uh, wonderful out of punk, and it isn't necessarily even the music, but it's it's that that creative vitality, and they've taken it into different areas, and I think in in small and in very significant ways, they've done really great things to make this city or this country. Uh, or this world a uh, better place. And I think that that is, is the finest legacy of, of DIY punk. Is that a good place to... Uh... I, it's fine with me. Yeah. All right. Cool. It was fun talking to you guys. Uh, about thank this. you very much, uh, Mike, for uh, conducting this interview. Thank you guys very much for putting on really good shows. <laughs> uh,